Okay, let's start. I wanted to talk about the striving mind today. <laughs> of course, uh, we come from a lineage of strivers. You know, before the Buddha was the Buddha, he was a bodhisattva, someone who had chosen long ago to <coughs> ripen his paramis and develop the capacity to reach full enlightenment in some future life so that he could teach the Dharma and assist other beings to find liberation for themselves. So there are many stories about the Buddha and his, his different lifetimes and what he did and what he learned and what he went through in the process of coming to wisdom. And you would think that when he was born into his last life, uh, you know, the last life he was, where he was really going to get it, that he would be pretty equipped to make the leap. But if you really look at the story of the Buddha's life, even though he had done so much of this front work, he was still subject to some serious misapprehensions about what was involved in the whole endeavor. And in particular, there's a story about how he went about uh, trying to find liberation in the period after he had studied with the uh, two teachers who taught him various concentration practices to the point of mastery. So some of you have probably heard this story, but here it is from the Buddha's mouth when he was practicing austerities and really trying to get across the finish line. And at the time in India, there were many uh, ascetics practicing a lot of extreme things. And it was almost the view that, you know, if you were going to be uh, a spiritual person, if you were going to, you know, really undertake this path of renunciation, you had to like really, really, really do it. And so uh, our role model here had a lot of resolve that he had built up from previous lifetimes and a lot of energy and an extremely strong motivation and he was willing to do what it took. So this is what he did. He said, um, I thought, suppose that I, clenching my teeth and pressing my tongue against the roof of my mouth, were to beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my awareness. So clenching my teeth and pressing my tongue against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed my mind with awareness, just as a strong man seizing a weaker man by the head or the throat or the shoulders would beat him down, constrain, and crush him. In the same way, I beat down, constrained, and crushed my mind with my awareness. As I did so, sweat poured from my armpits, and although tireless persistence was aroused in me, and unmuddled mindfulness established, my body was aroused and uncalm because of the painful exertion. But the painful feeling that arose in this way did not invade my mind or remain. So then he said, I thought, 
Suppose I were to become absorbed in the trance of non-breathing. So I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths in my nose and mouth. As I did so, there was a loud roar of winds coming out of my ear holes, just like the loud roar of winds coming out of a smith's bellows. So I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths in my nose and mouth and ears. As I did so, extreme forces sliced through my head, just as if a strong man were slicing my head open with a sharp sword. Extreme pain arose in my head, just as if a strong man were tightening a turban made out of tough leather straps around my head. Extreme forces carved up my stomach cavity, just as if a butcher or his apprentice were to carve up the stomach cavity of an ox. There was an extreme burning in my body, just as if two strong men grabbing a weaker man by the arms were to roast him over a pit of hot embers. And although tireless persistence was aroused in me and unmuddled mindfulness established, my body was aroused and uncalm because of the painful exertion. But the painful feeling that arose in this way did not invade my mind or remain. So Devas, the heavenly beings, were watching this go on, and you know, because they realized the importance of a Buddha to the cosmos, they're like, oh, 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 what to do? (laughs) So they say, on seeing me, Davis said, Gautama the contemplative is dead. Others said, he isn't dead, he's dying. Others said, he's neither dead nor dying. He's an arhant, for this is the way arhants live. So that sort of gives you the idea about what the view was to be an arhant. So then... Gautama got the idea, suppose I were to practice going altogether without food. Then Davis came to me and said, Dear sir, please don't practice going altogether without food. If you go altogether without food, we'll infuse you with divine nourishment through your pores and you will survive on that. They're like, "Uh, don't go there. (laughs) I thought if I were to come claim to be completely fasting while these devas are infusing divine nourishment in through my pores, I would be lying. So I dismissed them saying, enough. So then he says, I thought, suppose if I were only to take a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup, lentil soup, or pea soup. And so I took only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup, lentil soup, veg food, or pea soup. My body became extremely emancipated. Simply from my eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. My backside became like a camel's hoof. My spine stood out like a string of beads. My ribs jutted out like the jutting rafters of an old run-down barn. The gleam of my eyes appeared to be sunk deep in my eye sockets like a gleam of water deep in a well. My scalp shriveled and withered like a bitter green gourd, shriveled and withered in the heat and wind. The skin of my belly became so stuck to my spine when I thought of touching my belly, I grabbed hold of my spine as well. And when I thought of touching my spine, I grabbed hold of the skin of my belly as well. If I urinated or defecated, I fell over on my face right there. Simply from eating so little, if I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, The hair rotted at its roots, fell from my body as I rubbed, simply from eating so little. People on seeing me would say, Gautama the contemplative is black. 
Other people would say, Gautama the contemplative isn't black, he's brown. Others would say, Gautama the contemplative is neither black nor brown, he's golden-skinned. So much had the clear, bright color of my skin deteriorated simply from eating so little. So in these passages, he's talking to somebody who was um, kind of challenging him uh, from the perspective of the Jains at the time. And was basically saying, well, you know, you're not so, you know, ascetic. And he said, oh, yes, I am. Whatever priests or contemplatives in the past have felt painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their striving, this is the utmost. None have been greater than this. Whatever priests or contemplatives in the future will feel painful, racking, piercing feelings due to striving, this is the utmost. None will be greater than this. Whatever priests or contemplatives in the present are feeling painful, racking, piercing feelings due to their striving, this is the utmost. None is greater than this. But here's the key point. But with this racking practice of austerities, I haven't attained any superior human state, any distinction in knowledge or vision worthy of the noble ones. Could there be another path to awakening? And this is a very important point in the story because this is the point in the story where he acknowledges, after putting himself through all of this, that it wasn't working. And with that insight gained from observing directly what happened when he undertook practice in this particular way, he changed the course of how he was practicing. And he opened to the middle way, which is a way that does not reject the arising of what is pleasant and which does not seek to punish the body into enlightenment. And when he changes practice in this way, this is the point at which he actually broke through, where he came to understanding. Once he included it all, without preference, that's when he broke through. And he broke through because he was no longer at war with reality, no longer trying to punish himself into going beyond the human experience. Resting in and responsive to actual circumstances, he accepted the feedback from the results of the kind of effort he was making. He adjusted, he harmonized, he trued himself to how things were actually working. Right? He didn't insist on continuing to do it a particular way because he had some idea about it. So, in the Buddhist canon, of course, the Buddha uses the words striving and effort many times. And in fact, if you read the story about what happened on the night that he passed away, you will probably recall that his last words to his disciples as he was, you know, uh, heading out was, strive on with diligence. So here we are, we're exhorted to make effort, and effort is clearly needed for the task of awakening. Um, you know, there's a whole talk that can be done and probably uh, will be done in the course of this retreat on wise effort. Waking up 
is not easy. There's a lot of accumulated conditioning and it's very uh, deep and very powerful and dense and habitual. And it's tough to see through. But, you know, the Buddha, as we see from his own experience, had an unhelpful version of striving. And the big problem with the Buddha's way of striving uh, was, of course, that it nearly killed him. But the other big problem with the way that he was practicing was that it didn't work. So it was the wrong approach, no matter how much energy and sincerity of commitment he put into it. The humility and the openness of mind to accept the feedback and to make modification was there. And he took the feedback from his failure. Because he was mindful, he noticed what was actually happening and let go of the kind of moralistically tinged approach that he had been employing and he adjusted what he was doing. In other words, he let what actually happened when he practiced in this way be the guide to reforming how he was practicing. He let go of a mental model which didn't work when it didn't free his mind. He saw that his approach was inaccurate. In other words, he saw his own conditioning around how he was approaching the whole deal including the conditioning that told him that there was a right way and a wrong way to approach practice, and the right way was the self-punishing way. He accepted that the body wasn't an enemy, but was a necessary resource and would needed, was needed in order to unfold further. So in other words, he came to understand this about what's called striving, which is that it needs intelligence, it needs openness, it needs a sensitivity to the feedback from experience. It needs to be responsive and to let reality take the lead. In other words, this is wise effort that is led by mindfulness. It's not rigid and it's not compulsive. So which brings uh, us to a discussion about the issue of striving in our own practice. You know, the way we tend to approach it is very conditioned. And, you know, for many Western people, we are very conditioned to have uh, an assertive uh, way of being, where we want to achieve, we want to do it right, we want to succeed. We want to do it the right way. We want to uh, get what we need to out of it. We'll drive ourselves hard. We'll try to get what we want. We'll be very hard on ourselves. A very aggressive kind of uh, mind that we bring both to the endeavor and we also bring to ourselves as part of it. And this is learned behavior, you know, this is conditioned. And part of the conditioning around this just comes from our experience of being a human being, which is, as you've probably noticed by now, very confusing. 
I mean, it's a very confusing state because sometimes we can make things happen and sometimes we can't. <laughs> right? The Buddha said uh, that one of, one of his great confidences in himself was he knew the difference between what was possible and what was impossible. Right? But that was after he was the Buddha. <laughs> right? Up until that point, even he didn't know. And we get very confused about this. Um, there have been uh, a number of studies, uh, you know, using uh, mice and, and things. Uh, you know, and we, sh we share the same nature, you know, we share the same biological nature of, you know, having certain things that we need to survive and needing to uh, pursue them, you know, with uh, diligence and regularity in order to keep the whole thing going. But one of the things that, they, that have been found with some of these uh, mouse experiments is that if you have a mouse uh, and the mouse uh, uh, is given a, a pellet of food, when it pushes a lever, it learns to associate the lever with getting the food. Okay, So the way it works is they'll put you know, food on the lever and the mice will accidentally hit the lever and get the food. They'll do that a few more times and the mice goes, hey, you know, if you hit the lever, you get the food. And then a very interesting thing happens when the people doing the experiment only put food on the lever intermittently. Right? When it's only on there sometimes. Which is that the mice will like be hitting that lever and hitting that lever and hitting that lever and hitting that lever with intermittent reinforcement creates craving in the mouse land. And we humans, it's the same kind of thing, is it not? I mean, we get a payoff for striving sometimes. We get a payoff for trying sometimes. We get a payoff for really trying, really going for something, really making something happen. Sometimes we can. But from that, part of what seems to happen is that we kind of generalize the strategy. Right? And so when we come into Dharma practice, you know, we hit the Dharma lever. <laughs> ding, 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 you know? And just like with the mouse, you know, the less the payoff sometimes, the more we persist in the same kind of approach. Just in case that, you know, little Dharma pellet will roll down the chute. So there's a lot of desire present when we come to practice. You know, and we, we go to the cushion with a kind of insistence about and view that how things proceed is up to us, is under our control, or would be if we were doing it right. Right? So we totally misunderstand in this context what our span of control is. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about, and this isn't our fault, right? This is kind of like 
a built-in uh, error in the system or something, you know, it's like a little glitch in our programming. <coughs> but I want to talk a, what, about what unskillful unstri striving is like. So I'll give you a definition first. And uh, this, this uh, comes right out of the Abhidharma, in case guys here. Okay, so I say that this kind of striving is a high stakes, emotionally charged attempt to succeed by meeting fixed, although often inchoate, meaning not really defined, standards. It's fueled by ego ambition and issues of self-worth. It is not led by mindfulness and is not connected to an internal feedback loop. So in other words, we have a view about what should be happening. We somehow feel we know what's best, what should be occurring in response to our effort. And so like the Buddha before he figured it out, we might regard the task at hand as attempting to get to some state by pushing full tilt towards an imaginary outcome, what we think should be happening. So we think we're going to make awakening happen. The striving mind often feels that what is present is not adequate, not right, not good enough. So how does it know this about what's present? The present is not right from this perspective because it doesn't meet our expectations, projections, and performance criteria. It's not sufficiently pleasant or novel. It's not what is preferred. It's not like what we heard was in a Dharma talk or read about in a book or discussed over the Dharma water cooler before or after retreats. <laughs> So let's talk about how the striving mind functions in action. So how it works. So it attempts to bypass the present experience to get to something, some imaginary other thing, right? Now, interestingly enough, sometimes it doesn't even know what it wants, right? It, it'll know it when it gets it, right? It doesn't feel satisfaction, so what is experienced is discounted or turned away from. So, you know, there can be thoughts present there like, you know, this can't be it, or this can't be right, or there must be something more to it. Now, interestingly enough, those kinds of thoughts, uh, when mindfulness is present and there's an acceptance of, of what the experience is, can actually be... Uh, insight experiences that are pointing to the truth of the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned experience. But the mind isn't open at that level yet. So there are elements here of self-judgment <clears throat> and elements of uh, greed and craving and uh, elements of aversion to the present moment and delusion about the span of control. And interestingly enough, the, this kind of striving mind has a lot of comparison energy that's strong in it. 
but it doesn't have a lot of observational energy, right? So it's reaching out, it's doing that, but it's not really registering, right? It's kind of just bypassing that level. But nevertheless, it thinks it knows what's best, what should be happening, and that the present isn't adequate. So how does it know the present isn't adequate? Because it's not receiving the satisfaction from experience which it believes is the hallmark of success. Right? The pellet is not coming down the chute. Right? So something has to be wrong here. So, when you practice from this state, how does, how does the striving mind express itself? Well, it operates from the position of a fixed self-sense, kind of an egoic center, which must be protected or enhanced. Right? So, and this is interesting because then there's a lot of kind of ego endangerment involved with the enterprise, right? If, there, if it, failure is happening, then it's like very uh, high stakes, right? Starts to feel uh, threatening. You know, failure is something about me. Wow, that's a lot to drag into it, <laughs> into whether you can feel the breath or not, you know? You know, at stake, how the self is viewed and valued, whether it's good enough, right? Whether you can do it. So there's often uh, an expression there in the uh, control and conquer model, you know. So it's very tight, rigid, controlling, not interested in what's actually predominant, wants to get elsewhere, wants to get someplace better. Uh, It tends to be competitive, too, um, towards others, towards, you know, past performance. And it leans into the future, but it misses that point, okay? It misses the point that it's leaning into the future, that it's not really settled back and in present tense. So there are a few other things about it, uh, too, that can help you recognize it. One is uh, on the level of energy. Energy uh, is often uh, applied there and it's applied in a very insistent kind of way, you know. There can be a lot of energy. It can become forceful and even an increase in the face of resistance and failure. So uh, the resolve level is good, but it's being directed in a rigid kind of way. And because the expectations in the mind are not being met, by what's actually being experienced, it can become fatigued and kind of crash and burn. So strive, 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 burn out, right? The engine kind of runs out of oil at a certain point and then it all kind of like grinds, grinds to a halt. Okay, agenda on its agenda, specific outcome is required, interestingly enough, even though it, what this is often isn't defined or even definable. You know, it goes back to that kind of like vague sense that there should be like some crunchy 
chewy center to what's being experienced. And if, if it's not there, well, something's wrong. Well, could be something wrong or it could just be, you know, no self. <laughs> uh, <laughs> motivation. Mixed and somewhat desperate. <laughs> okay. So greed may predominate, but aversion and delusion are often strong. So the kind of effort being made is insistent of success in its own terms. Right? So it's not flexible or responsive to what's actually pinging back from trying in this kind of way. It just kind of like uh, tends to double down, double down on the effort. And the self-sense, and this is kind of a highlight, is very active, is very much alive when the practice is, is happening in this mode. And it's either threatened or enhanced by the result of the striving. So, you know, should you succeed in dislodging, uh, you know, a satisfactory pellet, then you might notice, you know, the effect of kind of uh, ego enhancement for a period of time. So let's talk about some of the, the problems or the issues with this, this way of practicing. Uh, you know, the first one is, just as the Buddha found with, with his, uh, you know, issues on the same topic is, it doesn't work. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. It increases hindrance states. And then very often when the hindrance states arise out of uh, part of this, then they're met with like more of the same kind of attempt and so they proliferate, you know. Because the mindfulness is not, is not there, uh, you know, more uh, striving proliferates hindrances. It's disconnected, meaning it's not connected with things as they actually present themselves. It's an attempt to overlay things or jump over them. And it's, because it's not observational, it's not connecting with present tense experience, Insight doesn't arise from it, right? There's no, there's no feedback loop happening. And, you know, a, a key thing about this, too, is that it's very vulnerable. You know, this way of working is very vulnerable uh, and taxing. And the flip side of this kind of working is a collapse into despair, a sense of failure, devaluation of the self, you know, a downward spiral into a kind of hopelessness when the outcome isn't met. And then, of course, once this happens, once doubt opens up in a strong way about yourself and your very capacities uh, to do this, it, it takes a lot to restart it again, you know, to uh, be able to rouse energy to try again uh, in a different way. Geez, that's depressing, isn't it? So, there is good news. You'll be happy to know. You know, just as the, the Buddha decided to modify his way of approaching the whole endeavor in order to bring it back into balance, uh, this too is a possibility for all us Western strivers. Um, you know, we can find a way of taking the energy and the resolve that we have and the commitment to seeing things through and 
turning it in a little bit different way so that it actually works to our advantage and isn't a source of our uh, own suffering. So what to do, what to do with the striving mind? Well, of course, you know, if there's a... There's one phrase that could be used for all of this. It's uh, bring mindfulness to it. Right. So here are some signs that striving uh, is happening. So recognition is a big, a big part of it. And in fact, now that we've talked about striving, I'll plant a little seed in your mind stream that if you find yourself in a position where you're exerting a lot of energy and you're becoming increasingly frustrated and feel like nothing is happening, it could be striving. Okay. So I just slip that in there. So, you know, if you can remember that there's a possibility that, oh, well, maybe I'm like leaning into it too much, could help you recognize it. So you can recognize when this striving is happening. So some signs are attempting to make something specific happen. Item two. Unwillingness to acknowledge what is actually happening, bypassing the predominant experience to get somewhere else. You know, there's a reason why the instructions very often mention Acknowledging the predominant experience. Okay. Okay. If you if what's going on is not happening in reference to the present tense, there could be striving. Okay. This meditation thing. This is strictly a present tense activity. So it can also be known by uh, when something's going on seeking to invent or replicate something from a concept or the map. You know the map? Some of you know about the, the map of the, the progress of insight. Very can be a very useful map. It's a description of the over, overview of the process. But Individually, we're all very idiosyncratic and it doesn't necessarily unfold in the way it's described on the map. But even if it did, the map is an overview of a process, right? It's not a prescription to you about what you should be doing at any particular time in your practice, right? It's a description. It's not a prescription. Okay, so... If you know about the maps, very interesting sometimes after. Okay, if you're practicing uh, from this state of striving, uh, but you're not relating to this, you're not turning the mind back on the state itself, You don't see it as an object. Well, then you're deep in it. So then the question comes, well, if it's happening, well, how do you, how do you come back from that? Right? How do you come back if, when this arises, if it does? 
So the real key to this is you need to reconnect in the present tense with direct experience. That's the big piece of advice with it all. You know, which is basically saying come back into the into harmony with things, into the truth of things, in the same way that the Buddha did, which is open yourself to feedback from direct experience so you can reconnect in the present with what's predominant. So here's some questions you can use to help you get there if you need them. The first is, am I in the present tense? Can I say what I'm experiencing right now? You know, if you can be willing to rest there exclusively to the extent it's under your control, that can be very key. Now, this is not to say that there might not be experiences of wanting, wishing, speculating, wondering, comparing, wanting, criticizing, judging, and all the rest of that arising in the mind in the present tense. Those are all present tense experiences and can be known in the moment as things that are happening now. It's whether you can see them as present tense experiences or whether um, you get lost in them and go on the train ride that they represent. So can you stay in the present tense? There used to be this uh, television show, this little television show uh, set in Los Angeles with this uh, detective sergeant, Joe Friday, and he would go around and interview people after crimes and you know they'd be blabbering on about this and that and this and that and he'd go, just the facts ma'am, just the facts. Okay, just the facts, right? What are the states? What's the predominant experience? Turn the mind towards that. And then notice when you connect with the experience, are you receptive to it? Notice if the mind rejects it or wants it, wants something else. And again, it's not bad that the mind rejects it or wants something else. Just notice that. Rejection and wanting can be known as present tense experiences as well. Know what the attitude of mind is uh, towards these experiences. Open if possible. If not, that's okay too. The experience of a closed mind, right? The experience of a mind that's in opposition to what's present. That's okay. That's the direct experience. That's a fine thing to know in the present. Don't like it. Don't want it. It sucks. Resistance, resistance, resistance. Don't want it. Don't want it. Don't want it. Present. Present tense. That's the present experience. And then here's a tricky one. And this is worth a whole talk in and of itself too, which is if there's a strong self-sense present, you know, there's a big sense of me and I and mine and my practice and I'm like this and I got to get and I, that's good if you can notice it. And then the question is, is that self-sense 
sitting on the cushion trying to drive the process or is it a meditation object? Right? Is the self-sense seen? Okay, so now we're getting into, kind of getting into some pretty deep things. We can watch the arising of the I, of the egoic self, as a meditation object. So, you know, recognize when, if you can, when there's an arising of this self-sense that has a fixed agenda. Make it the object of awareness. And it can be known as a body sense, as thoughts and as emotions. You know, there's a particular uh, configuration or set of configurations that come up when this part of our way of experience is really active, is really... uh, in there and has the uh, and impulses to drive the process are coming up in association with this manifestation. So, you know, the Buddha's ego sense didn't create his awakening. He saw and addressed his uh, delusion of control and entered into the great renunciation of complete letting go and then awakening happened. You know, we know that there are things to be done. There are skills that need to be developed in order to do these things that will aid our own growth and development. You know, that's why we're here learning things. You know, we talk about techniques, we meadow, we talk about planting seeds, we talk about how to work with this and that. We get teachings about how to hold it, how to understand it, how to, how to uh, come to an understanding of what the big picture is and what it all means. So there are things we need to know and there are things we need to do. But, you know, you can't leap over the present. You know, even if we think we understand intellectually what it means or hope we do, Uh, you can't really bypass it that way. So we have to relate to the present in a connected, allowing, and accepting way in order to have the path open to us. And our friend mindfulness, which occurs only in the present, is the necessary element. You know, mindfulness takes feedback. When I was thinking about this talk, I, uh, you know, had some images uh, coming to me, and I thought, oh, this is more like, you know, picking locks than knocking the door down, (laughs) what we're doing here, you know, it's a little... So, uh, you know, it's instead of, uh, you know, trying to break through a door, uh, it's... um, more opening the door inward, right? Have you ever had that experience where you've gone up to a door and it's not like completely clear whether it's a, you know, a pusher or a puller and you're like doing the wrong thing and like all of a sudden you, oh, God, yeah, okay, oh, God, stupid. <laughs> oh, that's one that you, oh, you open, you open, and you open, you know? The, the Buddha himself alluded to, uh, you know, awakening happening in his fathom-long body happening in connection with uh, 
the four foundations of mindfulness and what he could directly know. When you think about uh, the Jewish teacher Jesus saying, you know, the kingdom of God is within you. So it's not uh, out there for, you know, the egoic self to go and get. So when the Buddha used the word striving, the many times that he did, we should assume that what he meant by it was the presumption of mindfulness and non-greed and renunciation as key components. And these are things that can't be substituted. And so the question is, well, renunciation about what? And it seems to be something about uh, attachment to ideas about how things should be. And so, uh, as they say, I think in, in the film, uh, The Big Lebowski, is part of the polycanon. <laughs> uh, I think there's this line in there that goes something like, uh, who are you going to believe? Me or your own eyes? All right. So, the advice is, you know, the advice is to trust your own eyes. See what's actually present right there, right now. There's no other place to look. Right? Rest in and trust what you can directly know, what you directly know in the present, and it will open. Okay? So, may you know the striving mind well, know it's arising, and appreciate its persistence. And remember, it too can be known and be part of your awakening. So let's just sit for a moment. Let the words settle in. May the merit of this practice be for our benefit and for that of all beings everywhere, without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.